Hello everyone, I'm Frank Garz with Lean Startup Company, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to the show. Today's topic is the realities facing female founders, and moderating the discussion is our own Lean Startup Company Chief of Staff, CJ Laguerre. Our guests are Claire Lee, Head of Early Stage at Silicon Valley Bank, and Liz Curtis, CEO and Founder at Table and Teaspoon. This is the second of a six-part series we're doing with Silicon Valley Bank. We're excited to partner with them and share their expertise in helping innovators move their big ideas forward. In future episodes, we'll be sharing founder stories from their portfolio of startups, the processes and methodologies they use to innovate, and their insights into the market and startup community. And with that, I'll hand things off to CJ. Hi, everyone. I'm CJ Laguerre, Chief of Staff at Lean Startup Company, and joining me on the show today are two fabulous females. We have Miss Claire Lee, who is Head of Early Stage at SVB, and the fascinating Liz Curtis, who is the founder and CEO of Table and Teaspoon, otherwise known as TNT. Ladies, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, CJ. I'm really excited to be here. It's a pleasure. Very excited to talk to you. Our topic today is female founders, which I think for any woman in business is a really fascinating and prominent issue to discuss. So I thought we could talk about who you ladies are and what you do, and then dive into the Women in Technology report that SVB recently released. Sound good? Yes. All right. Well, I'm going to hand it off to... Claire, and you can tell us a little bit about SVB, and then hand it off to Liz to tell us about her amazing startup. Yeah, so thanks for having us. Um, we are Silicon Valley Bank. We're a global uh, bank for the technology economy, and basically we um, partner with and service startups at every stage of the life cycle. So from the very beginning when they form their company, take their idea, put their teams together, raise and seed funding from friends, family, and schools, and then moving through that cycle when they become venture-backed and hopefully um, eventually exit. So I run the earliest stage piece of that, which is the pre-Series A business, and it's um, all of client acquisition. We've got a team in the major metros in the U.S. where you know, 80% of venture capital goes to four cities, LA, SF, um, Boston, New York, and hello from Boston. <laughs> and, um, and then we have a team of people who are really focused on looking at, you know, emerging economies, growth um, markets outside of the US as well. So we're, you know, we're really embedded in the technology um, ecosystem. We partner with um, you know, the VCs, corporates, family offices, and a lot of other constituents. So entrepreneurship is kind of really our raison d'etre. It's what we do and, and, you know, it's what we love doing, supporting those innovative ideas and helping them be successful. Fantastic. And you are responsible for bringing Liz to the mix today. Um, why don't you tell us how Liz came to you and then she can tell us a little bit about her company. Yeah. I mean, like everything it's, I mean, this is a people business. And so, you know, we're in the business of meeting people every day, um, fantastic entrepreneurs and, um, and innovators. And so I was introduced to Liz actually through 
a partner of ours who's been helping us do um, a lot of work with emerging managers, micro VCs, and um, family offices. Um, we just hit it off, you know, and I was just fascinated to hear about Liz and her journey and, you know, really seeing the passion behind um, her idea and this, this determination really to bring this to life, um, I just found really compelling. And so that's why, you know, I asked her to tell her story because it's probably not, um, it's certainly not unique, but it's also not, um, it's not similar to a lot of other journeys either. So mm -hmm. I, I'm like delighted that Liz has the, you know, sheer grit, resilience, tenacity to kind of even think about doing this in the first place, um, especially with her background. But I think it's really um, testament to, you know, how passionate she is about making this ha actually happen. So I'll hand it over to Liz and let her explain who she is, what she's doing and why she's doing it. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Claire and CJ for all of the kind words. Um, this is my first podcast experience. So uh, very excited to, sh to share my story. Um, it's, it is unusual. Uh, I started as a lawyer and I was studying for the California bar exam and was going sort of stir crazy in my apartment and a friend came over and put on the Barefoot Contessa on the Food Network. And Ina Garden was roasting a lemon chicken and it looked like it took five minutes to uh, make and <laughs> I would also do that. Uh, to make my apartment kind of smell more like home um, and, and do something creative. So I ended up from there cooking the rest of the summer while I was studying for the, the exam um, and posting whatever I made with uh, my fuzzy pictures from my Blackberry on Facebook. <laughs> and then just got a lot of encouragement to start a blog because I had no cooking background. Uh, my family didn't cook a lot growing up. I think that the only time I cooked before that summer uh, the fire department came. And, uh, <laughs> so it was kind of like, it, how did this sort of just happen all of a sudden that I'm cooking constantly? Um, and then people also wanted to know sort of like how I was making these recipes more accessible. So uh, I started a blog called Table and Teaspoon, where the table would be sort of the decor and entertaining tips and teaspoon signified the recipes. Mm -hmm. um, and never intended on do, I didn't even monetize the blog. Um, I just wanted it to be a way for people to get into cooking organically the way that I had. Mm -hmm. um, so then I practiced law for a few years uh, and decided that I really would rather build something. I grew up uh, in Silicon Valley and sort of had this the bug early on that I wanted to create something um, rather than tearing things apart, which is what it felt like I was doing in corporate litigation. Mm. So I interviewed uh, with a few startups in a, around 2012 um, while I was still a lawyer. And I remember writing um, to, uh, to a really big company. Well, it's a big company now. It was a baby startup then. And I, I was like, I really want any seat on this rocket ship. I don't care if it's marketing or business development or whatever. Like, <laughs> I, I just want to get on this rocket ship. Mm -hmm. And they were back and they're like, yeah, great. Let's like, we're launching a new iteration of our app tomorrow, but let's talk after that. Um, and then I kind of realized that I'd rather make my own rocket ship. So I did not know exactly what that looked like. So I decided to sort of, get my hands dirty. I left law completely in 2013 um, and I wanted to figure out what could be scaled in the home entertaining space. So I did catering and event design and interior design and flowers and weddings um, and, and everything that it took to figure out what the missing piece was um, that could be scalable that would provide people more access to entertaining. And that is when I came up with 
uh, the, the current business model, which is like rent the runway, but for table settings. So, mm-hmm. so you pick my site, you pick um, one of six different settings, and then we send you everything that you need in this beautiful um, zero waste box. And then you throw a party or a wedding or a holiday, put everything back in the box dirty and send it away. So um, I launched with that idea in California in late 2016 and then uh, nationwide in late 2017. Um, and then went out uh, to raise my seed round. I bootstrapped everything in, up until now. Um, mm-hmm. and went out to start raising my seed uh, this, late last year. Enter SVB. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, Claire has been a great help in introducing me to people. Um, yeah. So it's been a really great, a great journey so far. I was so excited when I found out that you we're going to be our guest and I, I learned more about your startup for a couple of reasons. Um, I love your background. I love it. And I love the way you put it. I, I wanted to build things. I didn't want to tear things apart. That's a really powerful statement and a really powerful like motivator. I think when you're looking to completely overhaul your career, but I think when, when people hear the word startup, they think technology, they think apps or software or hardware or something that is not relevant to them really, unless you're a tech person. And what you're doing is you're using technology to bring a lifestyle element that was once a very regular and prominent part of our culture and society, but it has sort of faded away over the last I I would say maybe 70 years you're using it. You're using technology to bring this beautiful lifestyle experience back to our society and you're making thing, you're making entertaining accessible again. And I just think that's so special. There, there's something amazing about having a group of people into your home and creating an experience for them. And you're, you're bringing that back to life one, one table setting at a time. <laughs> I think that's amazing. Yeah. It, and it's interesting because, um, you know, I think that some people, when they think about what I'm doing, it, it could seem like this is a lifestyle brand and, and not something that would be traditionally venture backable. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's interesting about it is, is you're, I'm certainly leveraging technology and, yeah. and, you know, right now there's a, the, um, event rental space is a $5.3 billion market with zero tech innovation at all. Mm-hmm. Nobody is shipping anything. They're all driving it around in trucks or you have to go pick things up in a saran wrapped milk crate in this very unglamorous, unaccessible experience. Right. Um, and so that's 5.3 billion. And then event planners are 5 billion. They're also not tech enabled. Um, and then there's the, you know, the traditional $15 billion, like pottery barn, go and buy everything or register everything market. Mm -hmm. Um, and then there's also the $12 billion catering market and 72 billion wedding market. And and none of those are very innovative right now. So it was like, how can I make this traditionally, like a very traditional concept into something that is tech enabled and leverage that and sort of streamline consumer choice um, and, and also introduce this element of, of a zero waste um, sanitizable box and then kind of like mix all of those elements together to create a venture backable company and rather than a lifestyle company. So 
um, it's, it's been exciting to sort of figure out and troubleshoot uh, all of those issues. Oh, I, I can't even imagine. And I love the zero waste box. I love that you're like, ship it back to us dirty. No cleaning <laughs> for you. It just, it makes it fun and easy. And it's like you said, you know, these are very traditional industries and frequently the, like participating in them is just not viable for a lot of people because it can be cost prohibitive. Right. And this is a way to, to bring it back to everybody, which I, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of accessibility. I think everybody deserves a seat at the table, uh, so to speak, pun, <laughs> pun intended. <laughs> yeah. So I, I honestly, I think you are on track to disrupt uh, a lot of, yeah, I, I love what you're doing. And I think you're on track to disrupt a couple of, of dinosaurs who are very, very comfortable in their yeah. position. <laughs> yep. So now that we've learned about the type of female founder you are, I'd like to bring Claire back into the conversation because SVB released a report on women in tech and we're going to discuss some of the statistics and some of the, the information they, they learned and were able to share um, to talk about what's going on with women in business right now and female entrepreneurs. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, and, and thanks for highlighting that. You know, we're very proud of our, um, you know, the work that we're doing with startups and we really want to listen to what the biggest headwinds are for companies, you know, regardless of gender and, and background and all the rest of it, I think it's, I mean, it's, it's tough, right? When you start a company, you have a lot of headwinds. Fundraising is particularly hard, but I think what certainly we've noticed is that from a gender lens, you know, it, it unfortunately becomes even harder um, for female founders to actually attract high quality talent and build that team. And also, um, you know, anecdotally, we see that happening a lot, um, you know, having the confidence, you know, as a female founder to say, right, I am going to build a scalable business. You know, this is not, you know, to quote Liz, a lifestyle company. Mm -hmm. It's not a pet project, right? It's just going to be a scalable platform. And so, you know, I love the notion, as you said, that technology globally has, in fact, you know, helped break down a lot of, um, you know, borders and boundaries, and it's given a lot greater access, which is fantastic. It just enables you know, a lot more um, stuff. I mean, you know, I'm a, I'm a big proponent of using this kind of technology like WAG, you know, Talk My Dog and all these other fantastic things that did not exist 10 years ago, even yeah. five years ago in some cases, yeah. right? Yeah. And so, you know, I just came from New York where you've got a lot of these amazing female founders, like these badasses, and they're just, they're, they are going out and disrupting a lot of things. And, you know, it's called e-commerce, right? We, we know that. But it's a really it's a really critical piece of our everyday lives, and I think that's something that we kind of forgot about, right? In this age of connectivity, um, it's almost like we've become disconnected, right? There's, it's more uh, it's more kind of common, right, to walk into a bar, a restaurant, or something and see people individually communicating on their devices, and so yeah. that you know kind of it it, it just it's a shame, right? Because we love getting people together. That's what we do at SVB. We connect and convene. Yeah. And I would just love to see, um, you know, more, more kind of purposeful focus on, um, you know, female founders enabling them, you know, take these ideas and turn them into real global companies. And so from a gender lens, as I said, you know, we, 
have been very keen to keep an eye on what is happening um, in the world of diversity. And so, you know, since our report first started in 2014, um, we have seen a much higher percentage, in fact, the highest percentage so far of startups that we talk to um, have got programs in place. You know, they've become conscious, right, of um, gender diversity and the need to hire differently and empower their people differently and develop them differently. So that's great. It's 59% of all the startups we spoke to actually um, do have something in place to at least acknowledge it and try and address some of these, you know, these headwinds. So while raising capital is hard for all startups, um, you know, it's even more challenging for companies with uh, a female founder or, you know, co-founder. And I mean, the fundraising environment is obviously going to become, well, again, pretty interesting. It's, it's like never a dull moment. Um, right. With you know the macroeconomic situation, geopolitically, everything is kind of always shifting. So, again, it's going to become, I think, pretty interesting over the next year or two to see this uh, be consolidated. I'm really encouraged by some of the trends, like for instance, seeing more family offices kind of come downstream and directly invest in companies, more appetite um, for people to put capital to work with, um, you know, female founders specifically. Um, a lot of institutions are coming out with, you know, um, female kind of focused funds. Um, the work that All Raise has been doing and Alice um, to build these platforms is, is helping. Mm -hmm. But to be mm -hmm. honest, like I still think the single digit club is a real issue. And, and this is a term that I coined because when I looked at the data, you know, it's pretty depressing, right? But it's all single digits. It's all like less than 10%. And we've not actually made a ton of progress. And so, Biggest things for me when I look at these things, like three legs of the stool, right? It's what percentage of GPs, you know, general partners, partners at, at these venture capital firms um, and PE firms are women. That's still less than, I think it's maybe somewhere between seven and 9%, up from three to 5% in the last few years, thanks to things like all rates, you know, coming, coming out and really attacking it head on. Um, the second stat, you know, how much venture capital globally goes to, goes to women. Um, last time I checked out of the, you know, I think it was like 2017 was about like 80 billion deployed. Um, and then, you know, 2018, it was just over 100 billion. Um, and the, the number is 2%. So 2% of that huge sum of money went to companies founded and led by women, which is kind of appalling, really. Um, and then thirdly, when you think about participation and representation, you know, the number of women who are in very senior positions where they have authority and, you know, the decision-making power and hence the economic um, rewards and, and, you know, the, the wealth, right, is, is basically being funneled back into the same kind of channels. And so that's, that's kind of how I think about it. You know, the, the participation representation isn't great, but from it, you know, an economic standpoint, I really, really hope that we unlock the potential of this incredible constituency and just make it easier for female founders to go get the funding they need to go build a company to hire that team and go you know take their idea and make it make it happen so hopefully we're at a tipping point you know with with some of this but SCB is keeping a close eye on it and every year we do our startup outlook we'll publish the results mm -hmm. hopefully helping educate and inform you know the, the broader kind of industry that look we need to change things and we need to probably change it faster than they're already being changed. 
No, agree. Thank you. Thank you for sharing some of those statistics and, and your perspective being out there in the market, you know, in the nitty gritty working with the early stage startups. I'm sure that you do have a unique viewpoint um, as you're watching them come up through like their fundraising rounds and scaling their businesses. Uh, I think it's really fascinating that we as we as women I think we've re- we've recently tipped to the majority of the population. I think we're at 51% now and we live longer. And as Game of Thrones has shown us, <laughs> women are formidable adversaries. I think most of us knew that, but I I just don't quite understand why where the connection is still missing. Why we're still not seeing um the shift in whether it's funding, whether it's females being bold and brave enough and confident enough to step up and found their own company. Um, Liz, I'd love your perspective as a female founder who took a huge risk and it's certainly paying off. (laughs) I hope so. Um, Yeah, it's really interesting. And it's, it's something I've been thinking about a lot more lately because of all of the news out there that we have steadily been increasing the number of women um, who are v- who are partners and making investment decisions in in VCs in the United States. Um, mm-hmm. In 2016, it was 5.7 percent. Uh, this year, it's it's up to 9.6 percent. Mm-hmm. Um, those numbers are not great, right? But what's even worse is that those people are not supporting female founders. So it's not trickle or or they're not doing it enough to make our 2% of funding number change. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's interesting. I think like there is a lot of, there are a lot of academic theories around this. Um, Laura Huang out of uh, Harvard, she's a professor of organizational behavior there. And she's done a a bunch of research on this. Um, And and her conclusion is that there's gender bias in the questions that are asked. So whether you're a a female VC or a male VC, 67% of men are asked about their vision for the future of their company, um, which are called promotion style questions. And 66% of women are asked how they won't fail. Um, which, wow. is, which is called prevention questions. And there's a direct correlation with uh, how much money you end up raising based on which type of question you're being asked. Um, and again, both men and women are doing that uh, the same amount. So it's like, well, well where does that come from? Um, and then there's a, a couple theories on that. It's like, well, we know that we're hardwired to compete. So that's evolutionary psychology. Darwin said that we're, we're all sort of trying to get our, our piece of the pie um, to survive. And then, so how does that trickle into this issue? Um, and historically that's been the, the queen bee syndrome, uh, which right. is the answer that academics came up with in 1973 to where Darwin said that men um, compete intrasexually and, that, and didn't say that women did that. So the, in 1973, these academics came up with that, well, queen bee syndrome is when women are competing uh, for scarcity of resources. And so even though professionally um, we're not seeking mates necessarily, which is where sexual selection theory comes from. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's, there's two thoughts there. One is that um, our, our ancestors in the Stone Age didn't differentiate between professional and personal. So that whole like scarcity of resources thing, applying to mates or jobs had a correlation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's also the whole uh, scarcity principle outside of the queen bee syndrome, that if you're trying to access 
something that's limited, then you're, you're going to naturally be competitive around that. So um, Cheryl Sandberg said that uh, if there are enough women in power, then they'll certainly statistically help other women. But the question becomes, what is enough women in right. power and how do we get there? Because in the meantime, the queen bee syndrome is, is still going very strong, um, according to the data. No, absolutely. I, I think, you know, as women, we see that everywhere, not just in, in business, but socially and culturally, we see the, the powerful women either using other women to their advantage as opposed to elevating and celebrating them, or we see women viewing one another as threats. If there's a woman who has a skill set that you don't have or a perceived advantage that you don't believe you have, rather than embracing her and learning from her, we write them off as a threat. You know, we label them. And, and this is coming from a, a recovering mean girl. I was, <laughs> I was absolutely one of those women who was so insecure in my own skin that anytime I saw a woman that I perceived as powerful, I disliked her. I didn't want to have anything to do with her. I didn't want her to succeed. I wanted her to fail. And that was about me. That, that had nothing to do with her. That was about my own sense of self and, and my own journey to becoming a, a strong, empowered, confident woman. And I think as a gender, we're still struggling there. We're really struggling with the idea that we're uniquely powerful as individuals and that we should be building a sisterhood instead of continuing to tear each other down and undermine one another. Yeah, definitely. And, and I think that some of it isn't even as like on a conscious level as the mean girl thing. I think it's like, I think, so these women who've, who've recently become VCs have worked very hard to get there. And I yeah. think they're like, I just want to be a good investor now. And the problem with that is that a good investor traditionally, historically excludes female founders, excludes right. funding female founders. So it's like, I think without even realizing you're trying to keep your seat at the table, you're a lot of women are, are taking on characteristics of men. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that's, you know, that seems forgivable, right? It's like these women have worked hard to get here. So like, let them find their footing, let them, you know, prove their seat at the table. But that, if that keeps going on there, we're not going to, we're going to keep perpetuating this 2% problem. Right. Well, exactly. At one point, at what point does your, um, unconscious bias become accountable? to right. the work you're doing and to the individuals you're not funding because of their gender. And I think it also speaks to the idea that we as women need to make our own new normal and our own rules about what makes a good this, what makes good that, what makes a smart investor. I think a table full of women would have a very different conversation about that than a table full of men. Right. And it's not to say that, yeah. either, that either one is, that. please jump in Claire. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, look, I'm absolutely fascinated by this topic and Liz, like me, you know, we're hungry for the data, right? But we're also living anecdotally and in reality, like every day, what that shows up like. So I think one of the things that I've noticed, at least um, in the last two years, probably, is that the identities and, uh, you know, the, the stereotypes, right, have been nibbled away at for, for years. In the last two years, though, it became more acute, as in 
the sense of urgency around, you know, oh my goodness, these stereotypes still exist for crying out loud, let's get rid of them, you know, that has certainly accelerated, at least from my perspective. So identity is an interesting question. It's like, okay, who are you? What are you? I mean, I'm, I'm a mom, I'm a single mom, mm-hmm. a divorced single mom of two kids. I'm also an executive at a regulated financial institution. I'm also, you know, a, a board member on a nonprofit and actually going to join a second one, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I have a team, I have a family, I have a group of friends. And, you know, the discovery for me that actually you can unlock, unlock a lot of your potential by finding that tribe, you know, mm-hmm. really identifying with them and saying, gosh, yes, we are complicated. Like we're yeah. all complicated humans. And so I'm not defined by my gender. I'm not defined by my nationality. And I'm certainly not defined by my height because goodness knows, I'm like, you know, I'm vertically challenged. But, <laughs> you know, even, even hobbits can do well, you know, in, in this process. Like, you know, it's interesting, I think, to see how that has been evolved and certainly how it's been challenged, right, more acutely in recent times. Second point I just want to make very quickly is around allyship and advocacy. Like, honestly, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the amazing advocates and mentors and friends and supporters I've had through my career and my life. And so, you know, a lot of them are men, not all of them, but like I've just really been able to unlock that as well and say, okay, this is super important, right? If you have male allies and advocates, I actually call them feminists. (laughs) (laughs) Just invent a word. But they're really, I mean, they are male feminists, right? They're just huge fans, you know, of us and what we do, but they're also... I think as committed to helping change the system mm-hmm. and unless we unlock a lot of this stuff and change it systemically, we're never going to change. We'll be here having this conversation in five years time. None right. of us wants that. Right. You know, really, I don't want that for my daughter or anyone, you know, I really don't. So I think we've, we've really got to just zone in on this notion of stereotypes, you know, identify yes as a tribe and being inclusive around that because it is, definitely about having men in the conversation yeah. and tapping into the strength that comes from from that kind of, you know, that tribal kind of power, right? And it, it, it's absolutely nothing to do with gender. No, I, I agree wholeheartedly. I think there will be a day when men and women sit at a table together as a tribe and not as men and women. And that's exciting. That's, and I, I agree with you about about embracing and celebrating your allies. Um, I wasn't the original moderator for this this conversation. It, it was one of our faculty members, Hisham Ibrahim, and he said, "CJ, you have to do this. This, you know, this is something you're so passionate about." He literally pushed me into doing it until I said, "Yes, yes, okay, I have to do this." Because I met. I met Liz and I was like, oh, no, no, this is done. I'm doing this. You're not doing this. I'm doing this. (laughs) But if he hadn't pushed me, I wouldn't have done it. So I I absolutely agree with you that building that tribe, uh, that that I don't want to say genderless tribe, but yeah, building your tribe based on who your allies are, based on who claps when you win. um, Those are your people. Those are your humans. And, and we all need them. We certainly do. Well, I'm, I'm just hoping that we get a critical mass of more humans like this, you know, who really show up and um, really try to change things. Um, if we 
have a critical mass of these change agents and we really address the issues if we're intellectually honest with ourselves, then I think we can change it. And I'm really, really proud of the work that, you know, all Rays and, and others are doing. Like Alice has a circular summit this week in Napa, mm-hmm. you know, I think four four hundred women, maybe four thousand, I can't remember, but it's like it's a huge number of people, right? So there's this huge appetite. There's this huge void. And as I said, even though we have a higher connectivity, maybe we're just even more disconnected from each other than we ever have been. So somehow like what Liz is doing does help with that. Yeah. You know, it, it look at look at how much soul fuel you get when you do kind of click into your tribe and you come away from that and go, Wow, that was just so helpful. Oh you know, it, and we, yeah. all, we all need it. Yeah, soul food is is exactly the the right term because you do walk away from those group experiences just filled up. I, I had an, a Meisner teacher who said you have to keep your tank full. Like you have to fill up on the good stuff to keep you going. Yeah. And that's definitely yeah. that's definitely the good stuff. Yeah. So Liz, I don't know, where's the where's the the magic? Like how are you I guess, how do you get the strength to continue every day as a, as a founder? And again, not about gender. This is applicable to anyone who started a company and you're following your passion and hoping to bring it to life. Are you finding that people are now taking notice of you and do you find it easier to raise money? Or like, how do you keep going? What's the kind of key to that? Um, you know, I think about that a lot. And I, and I certainly, I understand that fundraising is going to be difficult for anyone. Um, particularly, I don't, you know, I don't have an MBA um, at all, let alone from Harvard or Stanford, where, where a lot of these founders are, who are successful at raising are coming from. Um, I never worked at a startup before. So, you know, both of those things would be against me whether or not um, I was, I'm a woman. Um, it's difficult though. You know, I think fundraising is is the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, um, including taking the bar exam. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, I didn't realize that it would be quite this challenging. I thought, so the way that I built Table and Teaspoon um, was, was very organically. So um, even though when I, when I realized I wanted to turn it into a venture-backed company, um, scalability and all of that uh, was, at, was at play from the outset, um, I didn't realize that that building the company itself and, and troubleshooting the pain points and you know building the sanitizable box and the website and all of that wouldn't be the hard part. That that convincing enough people that my idea would work um, and that they should take a risk on me would would be exponentially more difficult. Um, so I mean, there are days where I don't want to get out of bed or where you know, like I'm riddled with anxiety, but you know, I don't think that that's unique to being a female founder. I think it's, it's what all founders go through. Um, I think that it was a little bit easier to raise money maybe a year ago, six months, a year ago. It seems like the emphasis on women has, has slowed down a bit. Um, and that's also what I'm hearing from, uh, other friends who are, are raising seed in series A right now. Um, and I don't know if that's a time of year thing or, or what, but um, you know, I'm going to keep pushing through because I think that I'm, I think that this this uh, area needs innovation. Um, I think that there's certainly enough of a market there to to be venture backed, and I think that I can see the future of the space better than anyone else can because I got my hands dirty in it, because I I built it organically, um, because of the feedback that I get from my customers. So that is why I'm going to keep going. Mm, love it. 
I, um, I think there's always something special about an organic evolution of an idea into a bigger idea, into a bolder idea, into a business plan. Um, cause then, you know, it's, it's like passion through purpose. Right. Um, it's, 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 I think there's, there's always just a little extra incentive there when it's something that grew from, from this little bit of passion, from making a, a lemon chicken in your apartment <laughs> while studying for the bar, just to make studying for the bar a little bit more bearable. Right. Um, I, what would, if you, and I know it's always like, so what advice do you have? But I mean, good advice, bad advice, hard advice, things you don't want to hear but need to hear. What would you share with young women out there who want to, want to go down this road, who, who believe in, in their capabilities and their ideas and want to chase their greatness? I think I could probably write a book. <laughs> at this point. Um, I think that there's probably two main takeaways that I have so far. One is if you want to build a company and follow your passion, that you have to realize what you're giving up for that. And that is um, probably not going to take vacations. You might not have health insurance. You probably won't have time to date. Uh, you might lose friends because you can't go to their weddings or baby showers or, or whatever important thing is going on in their life. Um, your family will probably think you're insane. Um, <laughs> But at the same time, it's so worth it. If you, can, if you can deal with those hurdles, it's so cool to be able to wake up every day to get to do what you want to do and to, to follow your passion and, and live your calling is just such a unique, um, fortunate place to be in in life. That, so it's, you know, they always say like the highs and lows um, sort of balance each other out. And I, I think that's true. Um, and then the other piece of advice is that despite these glaring numbers about um, the disparity in, in the amount of, of VC dollars that uh, women get, um, and also sort of whether or not it's trickling down from, from the new number of, of female VCs, women have been my biggest allies um, for sure. And mm -hmm. that's coming from, I mean, all of my best friends are men. So it's not like men haven't held me up and supported me and, and um, been amazing, but but the women who I've met in this process have just been mind blowing in their willingness to become mentors or mm -hmm. to write personal checks as angel investors um, or to take my calls when I'm like I don't understand this term sheet. What happens if I take it? <laughs> right. um, all this stuff that like I've just had to learn organically over the last year or so. Um, I could never have learned it without being the guidance from this tribe of women, um, which Claire is also part of. Um, so I, I think find find mentors is a huge thing and and be clear on the amount of risk you're taking um, and will have to take for for probably years. I um I think those are two incredibly practical and useful, especially the first one, because um, man, you do you you give up a lot when you decide to you know plant your flag in the ground and say this is mine. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, and that was actually something I wanted to ask you about. Do you, you're, you're a single founder. You, you don't have a co-founder. Do you feel like co-founders, people working in teams have an advantage over solo founders um, just in that they have a partner to tag team with, or do you prefer 
um, sort of having that autonomy and being able to execute on your vision without compromise? I, I think that's an interesting question. And I'm, I'm not sure about executing without compromise, but I, I toyed with the idea of having a technical co-founder um, when I launched Table and Teaspoon in 2016 and the iteration it is in now. And um, we worked together sort of part-time for a while, and then we launched the site. And in a month, we were not breaking even on orders, which mm -hmm. is like completely understandable one month into a startup um, that's not doing any marketing to this day. I've, I've still spent $0 on advertising. Wow. Uh, and he wrote me an email and was like, I, this is sort of like the Titanic. And no matter how we rearrange the chairs on the deck, it's going to go down. So I think we need to completely pivot the business. And that's when I realized why I'm doing this on my own, because mm -hmm. it's, it takes so much dedication and patience. Um, I mean, you're making a baby, right? Like an, a, a business baby. Right. <laughs> Yeah, it's not going to just happen overnight and it's not going to be a success overnight and it's going to have to grow and go through growing pains. And I think being a solo founder, um, I've been able to to stick around long enough to make sure that it will work. And I I think I've all, I, as a solo founder, I think you have to be able to be willing to listen to outside advisors so that you are pivoting. Mm -hmm. um, I think you can't be super steadfast in in maintaining the business model as it as it existed before you know on paper before you started working on it um but yeah like I, again because i built this starting in 2009 to bring on a co-founder might be helpful in terms of like distribution of labor but um in terms of staying true to why i'm building this and why i'm giving up so much of my life to do it yeah uh, it's been cool to be able to figure it out on my own yeah i well and something you just spoke to uh being willing to you know, accept the hard advice from your advisors and, and outside perspectives, something you have to be humble. Yeah. <laughs> you have to be like besties with your inner humility because it, it can, I mean, as humans, we make mistakes as humans, we take, make the wrong choice as humans, you know, we do a lot of things, but I think as a founder, it's like you said, when you're growing a business baby, <laughs> it's, it's, it's so, it's so mission critical to just be open in, open to other people's feedback and thoughts. But I think, like you said, also stay true to the, your vision and, and your motivation for doing it in the first place. Like what a tricky balance to yeah. be able to take in all this feedback and then weed out the stuff that is not useful and be able to embrace the things that are going to continue to help you grow while not losing sight of who you are and why you're doing it. Yeah, and I think actually that's a really good point to make too. I think a year ago, I took a ton of advice because I was like, all of these women know more than I do and all these people in my ear know more than I do and, you know, because they've already built companies or they're VCs. And I think that I, I had to realize that not everyone's advice is going to be advice I should take. Mm -hmm. um, so, so figuring out how to weed through all of, of the information and, and then feedback that I'm getting has been really critical. Um, and maybe I would have made different decisions along the way if I had, if I had um, listened to myself a little bit more, but I think that it'll all work out the way I want it to, because I'm, again, I'm sticking true to that passion and, and vision and still able to pivot quickly enough um, to make it work. That's very cool. Um, Claire, I would love for you to jump in and share some of your hard knock advice as a woman who has seen so many startups come and go. Um, what advice 
good, bad, and ugly would you share with the younger generation of female entrepreneurs coming up? Yeah, well, so the good news is that there are a lot. And I'm thank you <laughs> yeah. like I'm I'm a hopeless optimist in this regard. I think there's a lot of really, really strong um, you know, founders who are just saying, Okay, I'm gonna try this. I mean, one example being we do a trek, SVB trek. Um, annually we bring you know, 25 um, university stage um, entrepreneurs to the valley. And so I'm just blown away by, you know, the, the companies these, these children, you know, have formed and the things that they're uh, building, the solutions, they're solving real world problems. And, you know, in a, in a lot of cases, they went on and raised serious uh, funding for those. And so I, I feel like that kind of like dauntless, you know, almost like crazy ambition, you know, the unapologetic, I'm just going to go do this thing, um, is fantastic. I mean, I, I, I love this wave of innovation. Um, and those, those entrepreneurs who are saying, heck, I'm, you know, I'm not going to go get a job at Google or whatever. I'm, I might do that in the future, but right now I'm going to try and make this work. So, so I'm encouraged by that. By the same token, I'm also encouraged to see more people, you know, jump off that corporate ship and go and start their own business, having learned, um, you know, from the incumbents or established, you know, players, and then they go out and say, okay, this market's being disrupted, I'm going to be part of that. So I think there's two kind of trends that are at least encouraging. My advice, honestly, having met with a ton of founders over decades of doing this globally, um, you know, been to over 60 countries, it, 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 it's just universal. Right, you've got to have grit. You've got to banish the doubt. You've got to really believe in yourself, your idea, the problem you are solving for. And at the same time, you do. You're right. You have to add some humility, and you have to be able to take constructive feedback, which is not easy. Like humans are just not really wired to do that. And so, you know, being self-aware enough is really it has to go hand in hand with being self-motivated and and knowing when to be stubborn and not back down and say, okay, I know you people are skeptical and you might be giving me advice. I'm choosing not to take this advice and here's why I'm sticking to my guns versus, oh, you know what? I think you're right. I'm going to try it and I'm going to, I'm going to listen and I'm going to learn from others. And learning from people who've made the mistakes ahead of you is one sure far way to try and avoid that. But it's kind of knowing when to just stick to your guns and kind of dig your heels in and kind of be almost stubborn. Right. About your conviction, right? Versus, hey, I totally get, you know, your feedback. I acknowledge it. And here's the two things I'm going to address. And those 12 other things you gave me, I'm not going to address because I don't want to. So just having that kind of almost self-direction is super important. You know, and, and to quote Liz, like the North Star for her is going out and building this business. And she, she will take advice for sure. But even I was skeptical when I met her. I was like, what? What is this? What are you, doing? <laughs> you know, and I, I love dinner parties, right? So I, I should be like her target market when you think about it. And yet right. I was highly skeptical. And it took me a while to kind of get my head around it. But you know what? She never gave up. Like she convinced me, like this is a real thing. And that's why I invited her to talk about it because I'm like, yeah, actually, it is a real thing. I totally get it now. And so, you got to be able to do that. You got to be able to say, look, I don't care what you think about me, <laughs> but 
I am going to go out and convince enough people that this is valuable and viable and they're going to buy it. And that's what you need to do. I'm, well, first, I love that you're eternal optimist. <laughs> I think we need more of those in the world. And I think it's probably incredibly helpful in dealing with the founders at the stage they're at. Um, you know, most, most of the founders coming through SVB haven't yet like raised a series A round. So they're baby fresh, a lot of them, and they're probably, you know, riddled with excitement, but also riddled with doubts. And I love that you're, you're there to sort of give that optimistic nudge in the right direction. Uh, but I'm also curious. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I tell you, like, honestly, it's so important never make decisions out of fear or anger yeah and of course everyone's afraid you just said it right so the, you know the majority of our clients are extraordinarily you know scared about the future and the uncertainty right this isn't something you've just got to happily coexist with but I will just remind people as I have to remind myself you know on a daily basis never make a decision out of fear or anger take a step back and then try and get some perspective, talk to people, be vulnerable, and then, you know, take a breath, move on. But if you can somehow gain some altitude around that, then you're less likely to make bad decisions because of, as I said, fear and anger. So, I mean, it's something we got to do every day, right? Yeah. No, amen. That's some, that's solid advice. It's especially the not making emotional decisions. Um, I, that's one I definitely have to work on because I, I can definitely have a hair trigger on decision making when I'm hot headed and or you know sad or scared or upset or anything like that. So um, that's that's definitely solid advice because I don't know of a decision I've made when angry that I didn't later regret. Like a hundred percent across the board, I can't right. single one that I wasn't like, right. oh, that was the worst decision I could have made. Absolutely. And you know what? I had to admit this the other day. I said, you know what? I didn't trust my instinct and that's what gets me into trouble. When I don't trust my instincts and I hit override, mm -hmm. I get into trouble. So by all means, you know, get the data, but also just trust your instinct, make a decision and never forget to kind of use that gut. And that's where I think, honestly, Liz has the advantage because she's like, yeah, to hell with you people. I'm going to do this anyway. You know? <laughs> so. I love that. It's um, gumption. You got that gumption and that grit, yes. um, which is so important. Uh, well, ladies, this has been such a fun discussion. I'm so thrilled I got to sit down and speak with both of you um, and that you're able to share some real perspective on not just the female founder world, but the founder world in general and um, what it takes to found and scale a business. Um, any any final thoughts you would like to leave our listeners with? Um, well, I'd just like to thank both of you for all of your kind words this morning. I feel like very ready to take on the day. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, thanks for the opportunity. Thank you for like bringing all of this data to light and 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 fostering the conversation around um, around founders generally and female founders and female VCs specifically. And I think. I think the solution is to just everyone needs to be more cognizant of where we are, where we've been and where we're going. Um, because the, you know, it, the data all indicates that it's best for a diversity of perspectives. So 
um, I hope that we can all just keep that, keep that at the top of mind and, and continue to build together. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think as women, you know, it's our time to really come together and to support one another and to believe in one another and to build tribes and to, to build a sisterhood and, and elevate each other to reach our potential. Um, I think we can look at outside factors um, until the cows come home, but at the end of the day, as women, it's up to us to come together and really grow together and support one another rather than viewing each other as threats and um, being challenged by each other in a healthy way as opposed to a toxic way. Right. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Look, you know, parting words, I would just say, you know, being conscious um, about this is great and purposeful, uh, as Liz said, but, you know, really, there's a ton of momentum around this topic and I think we gotta we gotta go change the ratio and I'm absolutely determined to make a single digit club a thing of the past in my lifetime so that my daughter has a you know better foundation to start on. Yeah. Um, and honestly you're you're either part of the problem or you're part of the solution. Yeah. People are just kind of like pick one, right? You know, either you're gonna be an activist and really fight for what's right and do the right thing or you're a passenger and you just kind of sit there and let things play out um and that that ain't, that ain't really an answer so yeah choose choose one you're either part of the problem part of the solution agreed my my pal reagan has this saying she's like you can get on the awesome train or you can get out of the way but you're not <laughs> stopping the awesome train <laughs> love it and I feel like this is an awesome train and it's just going to keep chugging along. We're going to get there. Change is a long, slow, painful process. Otherwise, we would all be our most amazing selves. But yeah. I think there are enough people that care and there are enough people who are willing to walk the walk and fight the good fight. And I think there's, there's more of the people that care than the people that don't. And I think, I think we're going to win. I think we're going to win in the end. So here's to doing away with the single digit club. Cheers to that. Hurrah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Susie. Oh, thank you so much. I had such a good time speaking with you both. I definitely feel like I have found some new female friends and colleagues and certainly mentors. And for all of our listeners out there, thanks for joining us for our conversation about female founders. We hope you found it interesting and enjoyed it as much as we did. And we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, CJ.